Well, I love that last song, It Is Well With My Soul. What a beautiful way to end the worship service. And it makes me think of some families in our church who are really struggling right now. And if you know the history of that song, you know that it was written during some very difficult circumstances. So I'm not going to go into specifics here, but just be praying for um, some challenging situations that are happening uh, in our church uh, today. One in particular, just pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ um, that they would be able to say it as well with my soul, despite uh, some very difficult things. And, um, and just be praying, be praying for your church family. We are in the letter to Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, at least the first one we have. And we're going to continue studying that today. My name is Adam. If you're new, I'm glad that you're here. Welcome. I'd love to connect with you. If I haven't done so before, you can do that by just connecting with me here at the church afterward, or go to efree.org slash connect, or right after this service, we're going to have a cookout across the parking lot. And so a bunch of us will be over there serving up some food for you. So be sure to join us after this. And we could talk there if you want, maybe as long as you don't hold up the line too much. Um, we are in First Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3, so go ahead and turn there. Before I get into the message for this morning, sometimes I like to share just a little bit of extra stuff that's going on around the church. And this week, what I want to do is tell you about some openings we have to serve as a staff member in our children's ministry area. We've got a few openings there that are part-time, 10 to 30 hours a week. If you or someone you know might be a good fit, we'd just love for you to check it out. You can go to efree.org slash careers. The thing about being a staff member in a kid's area at a church, is a lot of people get into it thinking, well, I love working with kids, so I'm definitely going to love being a staff member in an area where I work with kids. But hold on, because that is not what most of children's ministry staff in a church is about. See, children's ministry staff don't actually spend a lot of their time working with kids. You know what they do? They spend a lot of their time working with adults who work with kids or teens who work with kids. So just because you may not be a person who absolutely loves working with kids all the time, that may not mean you're the wrong person for one of these jobs. Uh, because really what you need to be able to do is coordinate and lead and, and organize adults. And you need to be passionate about the ministry that our children's ministry does. And you don't necessarily have to be the one in there doing craft time and story time all the time. It'd be great if you can do that. But really what we need are people who can lead a team of adults and teenagers to work with kids in our children's ministry area. So if you think that sounds interesting to you, we need a nursery coordinator, a preschool coordinator, an early elementary coordinator. And uh, those ministries are, um, are right now led by teams of volunteers, but we would love to have a staff member who's really dedicated to those to move us forward in those areas. So please go to efree.org slash careers if any of that interests you. And we're also interested in a couple of new positions. We'd be interested in having someone take on our events for kids ministry. You know, we do a trunk or treat every year. We do an Easter extravaganza. We started doing those a couple of years ago. A few years ago, they've been really big hits. Um, thousands of people have come out for some of those. And then we'd like to do a couple of other things as well. So if, if planning events that make families smile and bring them into the church is appealing to you, that might be a good option. And we'd like to have a connections coordinator too, someone that is dead dedicated to that area. So most of these are 10, 20, 30 hours a week. Some of these used to be rolled into other positions and would kind of like to spread them out a little bit, separate them if we can, so people can just be focused on one particular area. All right, that's my public service announcement for today. Let's get into our message. We're in 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 3. But before we go there, I want to just give you a little bit of background on this because Paul writes this letter to Timothy, really, to give him lessons to teach the church about how to do church well. 
That's what 1 Timothy is all about. And, and Paul knows that these letters are copied and spread around from church to church. So he knows in sending this to Timothy, this is going to end up in the hands of many churches, not just in Ephesus, but in Galatia and, and spread around all over the place. And so he, he writes this letter so that church leaders would know how do things need to function in the church. But he includes a really cool theme verse for us in chapter 1, verse 5. I mentioned this a while ago. 1 Timothy 1, 5 says, The purpose of my instruction, and anytime you see that word purpose, it's a good indicator that that's a purpose statement for the letter. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. So that, I've said, is sort of like the theme verse for all of 1 Timothy. But one of the things that threatens that love we're supposed to have for each other is conflict. And, and people conflict happens ever. You would think in a church where we all worship the same God and believe the same gospel and, and read from the same book and have the same Holy Spirit, though there would never be any conflict, right? And yet, if you've been around very long in any church, you know that's not the case. In fact, sadly, some churches are known for their conflict, which is so incredibly sad. Now, that's not unique to the church. If you're part of an HOA, you've probably experienced conflict. If you're in any kind of government position, you've experienced conflict. Maybe some of you have had conflict at your place of work. Usually that comes up somewhere along the line. So really, this is just a feature of people. This is one of the things we bring to the equation, is wherever there are groups of people, there is conflict. But Paul doesn't want that in the church. He wants love. He wants unity. He wants harmony. And one of the things that threatens that is when we uh, do things poorly in the church. And so he's writing this letter to teach us how to do church well. In the chapter today, chapter three, we're going to see sort of a secondary theme verse, a secondary purpose statement for this letter to Timothy. It's in verse 14. He says, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that, so here's why I'm writing, so that even if I'm delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. That's what this letter is about. Paul's saying, I want you to be filled with love. I want you to be united in what you're doing. Uh, I want you to have a clear conscience and a pure heart and good motives in everything you do. And a big part of that is understanding how do we do this thing called church together well? Because really the way God designed this to work is for his people to live life together. This isn't just supposed to be a we show up on Sunday kind of thing. This is supposed to be a we're going through life together kind of thing. And I know that's not going to happen for everybody over here with everybody over there. But the idea is we are together a large regional church, just like the early church was. But then we have smaller groups, house groups that we meet in that we kind of do life together with. We live life together and go through life together. And if conflict comes up there, it can threaten those relationships with the people that we're supposed to be doing life with. And Paul doesn't want that. He wants love. He wants unity. He wants good motives, clear consciences, pure hearts. And so he gives us instructions here on how to function in the church. We've already seen some of that in the previous two chapters. Last week, we saw that when it comes to spiritual leadership in the church, there is a role there that God has reserved for men. And if that sounds strange to you, go back and watch last week's message. It kind of lays out the whole history of humanity and how God designed from the time of Adam and Eve to the priests in Judaism, to the 12 apostles, to the spiritual authorities in the New Testament church and down the line to the church today. God has established a sort of order and design that there would be some spiritual authority that he entrusts to men. But what we will see this week is that he doesn't just mean any men. There are very specific parameters, character traits, qualities that he wants churches to look for and who they put into these positions of spiritual leadership. And that's important 
Because if you get the wrong people in leadership, they can quickly steer a group of people in the wrong direction and you can get division, you can get conflict, you can get the absence of love and unity, which is exactly what Paul's trying to avoid. Here's an example of what can happen when you get the wrong leaders in leadership and they start to divide over some things that maybe aren't so important. I read this story a long time ago and I'll I'll share it with you. The small community of Centerville, Georgia has a population of just over 5,000 people, but a total of 48 Presbyterian churches. The reason for this high number of churches is multiple splits taking place over the last 100 years. In 1899, only one Presbyterian church existed, known as Centerville Presbyterian Church. With about 20 families, the church was the largest in the Centerville area. By 1911, the church had grown to 150 members, a large church in America at that time. But a dispute arose among the elders over whether or not the offering should be taken before or after the sermon. So the first split took place with the dissenting elders and several families forming Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. In 1915, the new church was divided over the issue of worship services. It seems that a new young elder suggested that the church put flowers in the sanctuary and several others objected. As the members divided over the pro-flowers or anti-flowers positions, CRPC split and Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville was organized with 25 members. Several more splits took place over various issues between 1915 and 1929. It was in 1931 that a dispute arose in 7th Presbyterian Reformed Covenantal Church of Centerville over an issue that no one can seem to remember. Approximately half the congregation split away and nine people formed Third Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. More splits took place between 1931 and 1975 when a major split took place within the PCUS denomination over merging with the more liberal PCUSA at that time, 11th Westminster Covenant Presbyterian Church of Centerville voted to remain in the PCUS with the merger and 15 members broke off and formed St. John's Presbyterian Church. Unfortunately, one week later, St. John's Presbyterian Church split over the name for the church as some of the elders objected to using the word saint in the name. Since 1975, several more splits have happened, with the most recent occurring this past month, when 2nd Street, 1st, 9th, Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church elders found themselves at odds concerning the Lord's Day. They disagreed over whether or not it was acceptable on the Sabbath to check their email. Those who objected have split off and formed the Presbyterian totally reformed covenantal Westminsterian Sabbatarian regulative credo communionist, a millennial presuppositional church of Centerville. Said Paul Davis teaching elder at PTRC WSR CCA PCC. I think we finally got it right now. Finally, a church where we can agree on everything. So this is what Paul wants us to avoid. This kind of splitting and dividing in factions. And I know that it happens so often in churches and who knows about all the potential splits that happen because of things that create conflict for us. And Paul knows that one of the major causes of division in churches is the wrong leaders. It doesn't even have to be an official position. Sometimes it's just the wrong influential person that can lead a group of people to cause division within the church. And so Paul wants us to be careful 
who we put into positions of leadership in the church. Sometimes it's called guarding the gate. The leaders of the church and the church in general needs to be careful who gets into positions of church leadership because we need to guard the gate so that the wrong types of people are not in there. And this is what Paul is going to teach us about today. Now, before we get into that, you might be wondering, why should I care about this? Many of you are probably not ever considering going into church leadership of any kind. And so you might be thinking, well, do I even need to know this? Why don't you just share this with the elders? Why do I need to have this? And I thought of a few reasons why it might be helpful for you to know this. I'm going to put them on the screen. First of all, the whole church here is responsible for electing elders. Now, in Bible times, the church did not elect their elders, but that's how we do it here at this church. And so you, if you are a member of this church, and there's a a membership class starting this month, if you're a member of this church, you are responsible for being part of electing qualified elders. And so it's important for you to know the qualifications. Also, the church is responsible for holding those elders accountable. If you observe something from an elder that is not uh, behavior appropriate for an elder, then it's important that we as a church hold them accountable. The future elders of our church are listening to this message right now. So there are people who are in this room or watching online who may down the road become elders at this church. And it's important that you know what those expectations are. And what Paul is describing here, honestly, should just be the goal for every believer. When we get into it, you will see it's not in some ways it's a high bar and in some ways it's not. In some ways, it's a list of 15 things that really ought to describe every follower of Jesus. It's sort of a a bare minimum standard in a way of, hey, this is what we should all be striving for. This is a list that you could print out and put on your mirror and look at every day and say, that's the kind of person that I want to be for God. So let's pray. And then we're going to dive into chapter three of 1 Timothy. Father, thank you for your word and what it teaches us. And today we're going to look at a little inside baseball of church and what happens behind the scenes, but it is so important that we get this right. So I pray that as we, as we listen and we read and study together, that you would give us insights for our church, but also for ourselves, that this would be a little bit of a, of a test for ourselves to see, hey, how am I doing with respect to God's expectations for Christian leaders? How do I stand compared to what you want us to be? And where do I need to grow and learn, Lord? So I pray that every single person here and watch online right now would be able to take something away from this and apply it this week. And in your name we pray, amen. Well, chapter three, verse one, that's where we're gonna start. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. First Timothy three, verse one, Paul starts off by saying, this is a trustworthy saying. So maybe this was some kind of a phrase they already had. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. I wanna point out a couple of things in this verse. First of all is the word aspires. That's very interesting. If someone aspires to be a church leader or desires this position, the actual word in the Greek carries the idea of reaching for something. Like I'm grasping for it. My youngest, Ariana, is almost two years old. And from a very early age, she became a really good climber. Even before she could walk, she could climb. It was crazy. And she could get up on top of chairs and up on top of the table and up on top of the countertop and on all sorts of things you wouldn't expect a baby to climb on. And uh, she will now, she'll take a stool from one room and she'll draw a bar height school. She'll drag the thing over into the kitchen to wherever it is that she wants to get something, climb up onto the stool, which is itself a pretty impressive feat when you see it. Then use that to get on top of the countertop, then open the cabinets. And then she'll see something up there really high in the cabinet that she wants. And she will reach as far as she can, put one hand on this shelf and her foot up on a coffee maker and try to get up there to get something off the shelf. 
She is aspiring for something that she wants to have. She's reaching for it. And that's the idea that this word communicates. It's not just something that gets thrust upon you. It can be something that sort of wells up inside of you of, hey, this is something I would like to do. It's not necessarily a bad thing to desire this, but he's going to say, don't just give it to anyone. And here's a part of that. He desires an honorable position. Let's talk about that word honorable I I did some thinking this week. What what makes it an honorable position? Why would Paul say that? And I looked at other letters that Paul wrote where he talked about this sort of honor or respectfulness involved in being an elder. And I came up with a couple of things. The first thing that makes it an honorable position is that church leaders are to be respected. It's a respectful position. It's a position that that people are supposed to respect because of the position. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. I kind of think that maybe Paul understood that one of the ways you can show honor and respect to your church leaders is just by living peacefully with each other. And I think that's often true. We, we don't like it when we see conflict happen in the church. Would rather everybody just be at peace and get along with each other, you know? Uh, but Paul says that they should be shown great respect. It's an honorable position that should be respected, which made me think about, okay, what, is it, what does it look like to show great respect? And that caused me to think about the opposite of that. Well, what What does it look like to show disrespect? Because when when we disrespect people, usually it's not to their face, right? When when we disrespect someone, and when we're kids, yeah, when we're kids, we just disrespect them right to their face. But when we get older, we get more creative about it, more clever about it. We disrespect people behind their back. That's usually how it works. And I started thinking about that. Like, what does that look like in our lives as adults or even as teenagers to an extent? And disrespect usually starts in our minds with an assumption. If you trace it back, where did this come from? Why am I being disrespectful to this person, either in my thoughts or my words or my actions? It starts with an assumption about someone else's motives or character. That's usually where disrespect starts. And that grows into distrust and ultimately results in disrespect. So this happens in life, but it also happens in the church world where we see something that happens and we don't know all the backstory. We don't know all the details. So in our minds, we fill in those gaps. And human nature says we fill them in with the worst assumptions possible. Well, I'll bet they're doing that because fill in the blank. I'm sure the reason for this is, and we fill in the blank. Now, uh, some of you even last week came up to me and talked to me about this very issue and said, you know, I, I, I struggled with this a little bit, but I worked hard to make sure I wasn't allowing those assumptions in my head to kind of run away. And when we can do that, we have, we face a choice when we hit those assumptions about someone else, about their character, about their motives, about their rationale, whatever it is, where we can either allow it to fester in our minds or we can go talk to the person and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this. I I can't seem to let it go. Can you just, is there any backstory here that would help me understand why this is happening the way it is? Or one of the things we do is we go and we talk about it with other people. Now, sometimes talking about it with other people can be a good thing. Because sometimes we can go seek wise counsel about something where we've made an assumption about a church leader, something they did. Maybe it's the leader of our class or our group or someone in the church or a pastor or an elder. And where you have an assumption about them, maybe it's a negative assumption. And so we go and we talk to someone who is wise counsel for us. And, and there, that conversation can go a couple of ways. It can be either wise counsel or it can be gossip. And here's how to tell the difference. 
It's wise counsel when you go talk to that person and they say, no, I think you need to look at this from a different perspective because there's probably a reason for this that you're not thinking of and you need to give them the benefit of the doubt. After all, Philippians 2.3 says, treat others as better than yourselves. That means not assuming the worst of other people. That means you need to give the benefit of the doubt and assume that there's probably some good reason for this that you just don't know. Or that conversation could end with, Boy, I'm not really sure. That does look bad. Let's go talk to them together and find out what is, this, what is behind this thing that is upsetting you. And that's a perfectly good outcome. Those are the two options I can think of where it's wise counsel. Where it's not wise counsel is when you talk about it and you don't come to a conclusion or a resolution and you're still probably upset about it when you're done and there's, those assumptions are still lingering there and then you don't do anything else with it or you go talk to other people about it. That's pretty clearly not wise counsel at that point. If you're not then going to the person that you were talking about behind their back, which again, if there's wise counsel, then there's, it's understandable to find out, go talk to them and find out, hey, what's behind this? I think I speak for all elders, pastors, and church staff in the world when I say we appreciate it so much when people come to us and say, hey, I noticed this. My brain gave me this assumption. I want to check with you to see if that's right. Is there anything else behind this that might be causing me to think this, but it's not really true? Is there some other explanation here? Because I will tell you, usually there are very good reasons for the things church leaders do. But usually some of those reasons cannot be broadcast publicly. That's almost always true. And so church leaders have to be very careful what they communicate because many of the decisions that are made in a church, even though you, you might not realize it, could be disparaging towards someone, could end up indicating that someone you know, did a bad job at something or, or had some sin in their life or had some other problem or there was just some issue over here that if it was communicated publicly could really be hurtful to people. And so oftentimes in the church, there is a reason behind the scenes that is a very good and valid reason for why something is done, but it can't be shared publicly. And so that's why Paul is saying, hey, show respect for your church leaders. Don't assume the worst about them. Uh, what the work that they do is, is challenging. It can be hard. They're watching over you. They're dealing with a lot of different people. Don't assume the worst about them. Be respectful about them. So that's one aspect of it being an honorable position. They're supposed to be showed great respect. The other aspect is that church leaders have a very heavy responsibility. This is not a position to enter into lightly being a church leader in any way. James 3 says, dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the world for we who teach will be judged more strictly. That is a serious threat. Wow, if you are going to be a teacher in the church, you are going to be judged by God more strictly. God holds his teachers accountable. That's a big deal. And then Hebrews says, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. It's a kind of a scary thought, isn't it? That church leaders are directly accountable to God. If you're a leader in the church in any capacity, you have a level of, of um, strict judgment that is coming for you and an accountability to God that may not be there for everybody else. And that's something to take very seriously. I think about those church leaders, and I'm not going to name names, but you all know some uh, from you know, the national scene from St. Louis all over the place who have been church leaders who have just screwed up in a major way. And in some cases, didn't apologize, didn't make it right, didn't repent for it. And I think about, wow, what those people are going to face when they go before God. And God says, you are a leader of my people. 
And look what you did. You had this great responsibility, this great privilege, this great position of respect. I told people to respect you. And you messed up like this. They're accountable to God. That is a serious responsibility for church leaders to have. So let's get into the qualifications that Paul gives for these people that have this honorable position. Verse two says, so a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. Specifically, Paul here in in church leaders is the Greek episcope, which means um, like a bishop is translated bishop. Episcope and presbyteros are used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer basically to elders. And eventually the, the bishops and the elders in the early church would start to become kind of two separate types of things where the bishop is an elder, but they oversee the rest of the elders. And so the bishop is kind of the forerunner to what we might understand as the senior pastor today, although some churches still call them bishops. Uh, but at this point in time in the church, the term for Bishop Episcope and the term for Elder Presbyteros were used basically interchangeably. So we're talking about elders here. And Paul says he must be a man whose life is above reproach, or some versions will say blameless. This does not mean that he has to be perfect. Because if that's what it meant, Paul wouldn't even be qualified. Peter wouldn't even be qualified, but they referred to themselves as elders. This means that there's no pattern of sin that could be brought against him to say, hey, this guy is a known liar. This guy is a known adulterer, a known cheat. Like there is something in his life that we can bring a charge against him to say he is this type of person. He has unrepentant sin in his life that is known. That's what being blameless or above reproach means. He must be faithful to his wife. Faithful to his wife, literally in the Greek, means a one-woman man. Uh, It doesn't actually refer specifically to a wife. There is another word that we could use for that, but it just says a one-woman man. So if he's married, he needs to be faithful to her. And he can't have multiple wives, and he can't be cheating on her. He must exercise self-control. He can't make impulsive decisions or be be rash when something happens that he didn't expect, especially within the the church and something happens that's a difficult situation, which happens on a weekly basis. He can't be impulsive and want to just go do crazy things all of a sudden. Uh, He's got to have self-control. He needs to live wisely. That means he makes good decisions and he plans well. He's able to think ahead about the future and plan for what's going to happen and and live wisely in his life. Because after all, if he's not making wise decisions in his life, then how is he going to make wise decisions for the church? It probably means he's not the type of person that racks up a whole lot of debt in his life or gets himself into all kinds of trouble in his life. He's making smart decisions, which will then reflect on the decisions he makes in the church. He has to have a good reputation, a good reputation. That means he has to be known for these things. People have to recognize him as being a person of character and integrity. You know, at church, we have this tendency to put on a really good face, don't we? We can walk into the church here and we can put on our mask and we can make ourselves look good. And when we go to small group, we can look all good and spiritual. But what really matters is what are you like at work? What are you like at school? What do you like with your family at home? Are you the same person there that you are here? And so you need to have a good reputation not just be seen as good within the church. He must enjoy having guests in his home. This is hospitality. Enjoy having guests in his home. Now, this can mean different things to different people. 
Because for some people, hospitality is just spontaneous and spur of the moment and you need a place to live for three months. Sure, come live with me. That's fine. Okay, for some people, that's hospitality. For other people, hospitality is I plan for a month and then I have people over into my house. So it can look different for different people. The key is, are they someone who welcomes people into their home and are generous and gracious with them? We'll share a meal with them. We'll care for them when they need it. We'll, we'll help them out in different ways. So don't think if you're not sort of the extroverted, fly by the seat of your pants, all of a sudden welcome people in your home that you can't fulfill this requirement. There are lots of ways to be hospitable in your home. And then he must be able to teach. He's got to be able to communicate the truths of God's word. And the idea of teaching here has to do with, um, with instructive teaching that Paul is giving to Timothy. It's, it's doctrine, um, it's church practice, it's all the things Paul is communicating to Timothy here. Elders need to be able to pass that on. Not just know it, not just be committed to it. They've got to be able to communicate it. But they don't have to communicate it in big groups. There is nothing in the text here that says he has to be able to teach in front of hundreds of people or even dozens of people. Some elders are phenomenal teachers of a few people, and that is still able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker. He must not be a heavy drinker. He can't be someone who is consuming alcohol as an addiction. Notice that Paul does not say he can't have any alcohol at all. Although many church leaders will choose not to have any alcohol at all, just to make sure they stay as far away from this as possible. And that's a perfectly fine thing to do. But when alcohol takes control of your life, it, it, it takes control. And there's another point where Paul says, don't be controlled by wine, but be controlled or filled with the Holy Spirit. We should be letting the Spirit of God control our lives, not any substance that we put into our bodies. And so some people certainly can have alcohol within moderation, um, but for some people, it becomes a, a heavy addiction to the point where they're basically controlled by it and they're a different person when they have it. And so this is something Paul wants us to avoid in our church leaders. The next two words are separated in the version we have, but they're connected in the Greek, which is he must not be violent, but be gentle. These are two opposing ideas. The concept here is that in responding to difficult situations, he's not going to immediately go to fists. He's not going to jump right to, I'll show you, I'll take care of this. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be physical violence either. It's taking physical action in some way against someone that would be inappropriate. My son is eight years old. And recently he has figured out how to prank his parents. So he will, he will do things like, uh, at some point, must have been yesterday, he took my wife's glasses and hid them behind a bunch of my stuff. And if you know anything about Jenny, she can't see without those glasses. So she's got to have the glasses to find the glasses. So sometimes she'll ask me, oh, Jackson hid the glasses again. Can you help me find where those things are at? And then, you know, I'll find them and put them on. She can see again. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to take a shower, opened the door to the shower, went to turn on the water. And we've got one of those where the temperature control and the water pressure is separate. And then there's that separate, you know, spray nozzle thing. He had taken the temperature and turned it all the way to cold. And he took the separate spray nozzle and pointed it right at the door. So that as you turned it on, it would just spray cold water right in your face. And I reached for this thing. I was very tired, very foggy. I reached for this thing to turn it on, looked up, and I saw it staring right at me. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so I, turned, I fixed it, and I knew what had happened, that little stinker. Um, a few days later, again, I went to turn on the shower, and there it was staring me in the face, and I barely caught it. But I didn't think to tell my wife. She got it. 
right in the face, blast of cold water, first thing early in the morning. And when he found out, he was ecstatic. Now, what we talked about then as parents that night was, how are we going to get him back? Like, what can, we talked through some ideas and it was escalating to the point where I'm like, I'm not sure if we want to go there. Um, It's not a perfect analogy, but the idea of, hey, someone has done something to hurt me. I want to do something to get back at them. And maybe it's going to be violence. Maybe it's something I do at work because somebody did something to me at work that I didn't like. So I'm going to sabotage their project, but I'm going to get violent over this. I'm going to do something physically in some cases to hurt somebody. But instead, Paul says he needs to be gentle. He needs to respond with gentleness, even when he faces a difficult situation. Not quarrelsome. That means he's not somebody that likes to pick fights. He's not somebody that likes to stir people up and cause dissension and cause division in the church. You, you know those people when you see them and when they, when they come and they talk to you and they start to spread things to you. And, and at no point in the conversation do they say, so I talked with so-and-so to get a better understanding. They just, they just complain and they want you to feel the way they did. They want you to not only empathize with them, but get on board with their mission, their objective. And they cause division in the churches. Those are quarrelsome people. People like that are not supposed to be in leadership in the church. They're also not supposed to love money. Now we know from the Bible that it is not the money that is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says. It's loving money, putting that as a priority in our life that causes so many other problems in our life. It becomes a priority over our family, a priority over our church and our ministry, a priority over our relationship with God. And so Paul says, if you're looking for someone to be a leader in the church, specifically an elder, they can't be someone who loves money. You know, a lot of churches struggle with this, where they will see someone who is a great business person and they will think, well, they're so successful in their job. They must be successful at running a church and a church. Make no mistake about it is part business. There's a business aspect to church. There's a lot of stuff we have to do with accounting and human resources and insurance and all that other stuff. There's a big business aspect of the church. But more than that, the church is first and foremost a family, not a business. And so you've got to have both aspects of those. And you can't just have someone that's really, really good in their business and good at doing those things um, come in and run the church. You've got to have someone who is, is a spiritual person who understands that the church is not just like his business. Then he says he must manage his own family well. And so this would go along with that. Don't just look at his job to see, well, is he successful there? But look at his family because the church is much more like a family. Does he have a good family? Does he lead his family well? Is he raising up his children well? Or has he raised his children well? That doesn't mean that his children, as they become adults, always have to do everything he would want them to do. At that point, they're making their own decisions. But to the best of his ability as a father and a husband, was he leading his family well? If he is, that's a good indicator that he might do a good job within the church as well. And then having children who respect and obey him. And that's a part of that as well, all a part of managing his family well. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? It's a great question. Why would you want someone who is amazing in the business world, but has a horrible family life responsible for the church, which is a combination, a blend of both? The church is a family that has elements of business. You need someone who is not a lover of money, lives wisely, makes good decisions. And so that's going to show up in his business if he's got a business or, or his job, wherever he works, whatever that is. Um, but most importantly, he's got to manage his household well so he can manage the family of God well as well. Then a church leader must not be a new believer 
because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. You know, I've seen this too often where someone comes to Christ and we lump too much on them too early because they're so passionate and they're so excited. In fact, those of us who've been believers a longer time, sometimes we lose some of that early passion. And we see someone who's just been a believer for a short while and we think, wow, they're, they're just so passionate and they've got such a love for Jesus and they share the gospel with people and it's amazing, but they don't have the years of experience of faith and trusting in Jesus and going through hard times and making it through to the other side and, and having a strong faith through it all. And so you want someone who is not a brand new believer. I would rather have someone, by the way, this does not mean that they can't be young. This just means they can't be young in the faith. Timothy was in his 30s when he was in charge of the whole church in Ephesus. Um, and he was much younger than Paul. So I would rather have someone in their 30s who's been a believer for five or 10 years than someone who's 50 and came to Jesus two weeks ago. Uh, it really has to do with how mature are they in the faith? Are they an elder in the faith, not a new believer? Because of course, if, if you give a new believer a position of authority, they don't have all of the training and experience and education to understand how little of this is them, how much of this is God. There's a lot of Christian living left to go for them. And so they may think, well, I've got this position. This is great. And it goes to their head and they get all prideful and then they fall because they were elevated too early. Give them time to mature and grow in their faith before you do that. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. It's not just about how you look when you're at church or in your small group. It's also about what do people at work say about you? What do people at your school say about you? What are, the, what are the people that you know in your neighborhood say about you? Do they know you as that guy who's got a gentle demeanor and is, is uh, great to be around and always a positive person? And, or do they know you as that person who's always yelling at them to, I don't know, get off your lawn or something? Who's always kind of angry and bitter and complaining about something? How do people outside of the church view you? That is also something that we are supposed to look into when we evaluate church leaders. So it's an honorable position which means it comes with respect, but it also comes with a great amount of responsibility. And we have to be careful who we give it to and look for the right people who meet these qualifications. That means we have to evaluate their lives closely to see if they are above reproach, if they are living with wise choices, if they're managing their family well, if they have a good reputation both inside and outside the church. Now, Paul is going to pivot here from talking about the elders of the church to talking about the deacons. And so we're going to look at the deacons a little bit here as we start to wrap up in verse 8. Deacons, uh, you may remember, were formed in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles were experiencing this huge growth in the early church. And they realized, hey, we can't keep up with all of this. We can't keep serving people the same way we did before when it was 100 people. Now that it's growing to thousands of people, we can't keep up with this. And we need new layers of leadership here. We need to be able to delegate to people. The Jethro principle, Moses' father-in-law told Moses, hey, you need some more layers of leadership so that you can delegate some of the responsibility to other people or you're going to kill yourself. You're going to burn yourself out trying to do all this on your own. The same thing was true for Jesus. He had 12 apostles. He had many disciples who he gave leadership responsibility to. In fact, the Bible says that it was actually the disciples that baptized people. Jesus delegated that responsibility to them and many other things as well. And so the church is no different. The apostles found that they were quickly being burned out by having too many people to care for, to shepherd, to provide food for was the particular straw that broke the camel's back when they couldn't keep up with it all. And so they created this role, diakonos or servant, which means deacon. And so Paul now in 1 Timothy 3 says in the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have dignity 
They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. Now, I'm not going to go over again the ones that we already talked about with elders. Let me just point out the ones that are different. The elders should not be lovers of money. The deacons should not be dishonest with money. Why is that? Well, because the deacons were responsible for the resources of the church making its way to the people who had needs. And if they were to go to the storeroom of the church, which they had the keys to, and say, okay, we've got all this good stuff in here. You know what? I could give some of this to the poor. I could also just take some of it and sell it and keep some for myself. And so they didn't want deacons who were embezzlers. So the deacons have to be people who are honest with money. Then he says they must be committed to the mystery of the faith. Committed to the mystery of the faith. This pairs up with when the elders are told they must be able to teach. The elders have to be able to communicate the truth of God's word and the mystery of the faith. The deacons don't have to be able to teach it per se, but they do have to be committed to it. So there's a little bit of a distinction there, but it's important that deacons be committed to the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience again, because they are responsible for some resources in the church. And so they have to have a clear conscience and not be people who um, you could accuse of stealing or embezzling or anything like that. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. So just as the elders have to be above reproach, and you're supposed to evaluate their lives closely, you need to evaluate the deacons closely as well to make sure there's nothing in their life that would disqualify them for this role. Now at this church, we have something called a nominating committee. That's not a biblical thing. That's just a thing that's been developed over the years in church tradition. There's a nominating committee that is responsible for doing this evaluation. And they look into potential elders and deacons and they examine their lives closely and they interview people and they try to figure out, does this person meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3? And then Paul says in the same way, their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I do have to tell you that there is some confusion about what this verse means because of this word wives. That does not necessarily mean wives. It could just as easily be translated women. And we don't know what is intended here. Is he talking about deacons' wives or is he talking about women deacons? We just aren't sure. In fact, most Bible scholars will tell you, well, I lean in this way or I lean that way, but ultimately we just can't be 100% certain. I will tell you that for me personally, as I read the text and look at the Greek of it, it seems to me to fit best as wives. So I think the translation here is probably correct. But the percentage I would give to my confidence level on that is about 55 in other words, I'm really not sure. So we're not going to make too big of a deal about that. The truth is, um, sometimes new archaeological discoveries unearth scrolls and writings and artifacts that help us to understand better how language was used. And it may be at some point in the future that we will have some sort of new information that will help us better understand what is really meant there. Uh, until that happens, we're just not 100% sure. Uh, I have my reasons for why I think it's probably wives. Many wonderful people would disagree and say, yeah, I think it's women deacons. And they have very good arguments that I can completely understand and, and could see that as well. Whether or not it's women deacons or wives isn't hugely consequential because Paul's prohibition that we talked about last week with regard to teaching does not apply to deacons. Elders have to be able to teach. Deacons have to be committed to the mystery of the faith. 
There is a distinction there. And so at this church, we have men, men deacons and women deacons, and our deacons serve in all sorts of ways by, um, by watching over the finances of the church and the facilities and taking care of benevolence, distributing resources to people in our church. And both men and women serve as deacons and do a wonderful job, and we, we welcome that. Then uh, Paul moves back to deacons, and he says a deacon must be faithful to his wife. That's the same phrase, a one-woman man. And he must manage his children and household well. Those who do well as deacons, I love this. This is one of my favorite parts of this, this chapter. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence. This is really cool. Don't skip over this. Increased, that's a terrible outline. Increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. I absolutely love this. For a couple of reasons. One is we often think that the most respectful people in the church are the ones we can see, the ones we see on stage. And I got to tell you, I think from God's perspective, some of the most respectful people in the church are the behind the scenes servants. The deacons typically back then and now are not people that you're going to see all the time. And there are lots of other people who serve in the church. That's what deacon means. It's a servant. There are lots of people who serve in the church in behind the scenes ways that you don't see And yet from God's perspective, he's going, well done, good and faithful servant. I heard a pastor um, talk about this one time. He was talking about Billy Graham. And he said, hey, Billy Graham, amazing guy, love him to death. He's with Jesus now. And we think of him as just this, oh, on a pedestal, Billy Graham, you know, respected guy. He said, I just wonder. I wonder if he's like number 10 million on the respected list up in heaven. Like if there's all these other people that you've never heard of, the, you know, the, the grandma prayer warriors and the, the young guys faithfully serving in some country that you've never been to in your life and all these people that, that didn't make a big splash in this world, but they made a big splash in heaven because of how they faithfully served God. I think that's the idea here that the deacons will be rewarded with respect from others in this case if they serve well, those who serve in the church. And I think that's something to remember. But there's another aspect of this, which is really neat, which is that those who serve well will have an increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. That's what serving does. And here's why. When you're serving someone else, you're not thinking about you. You're thinking about them. You're an ambassador for Christ in that moment. You're serving on his behalf, serving someone else. It's about them more than you. And the little problems that would distract you, the little things that would annoy you, the things that cause issues in your life and can lead to so many psychological problems, well, they just seem less important when you're spending your time serving other people. I used to do a lot of pastoral counseling of people who struggle with depression and anxiety and and addiction and other things like that. And one of the things I would try to get them to do was get involved in serving other people. Because if they would do that, if they would start serving others, I would see a change in their life and their attitude and their thoughts because it wasn't about them anymore. It wasn't always thinking about them. It was about helping other people and they found new purpose in life. If you serve others well, you will find an increased confidence in your faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul says another thing, which I think is really neat here at the end. He says, I'm writing these things to you now. We read this earlier. Even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. Then he says, this is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body, 
and vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. It's almost like Paul knew after the rest of chapter three that we were going to get caught up in this church leader thing and start evaluating people. And he's like, hey, hey, remember what really matters. Without a question, this is the great mystery of our faith, what Jesus Christ did. The people in the Old Testament, they had no idea how God would fulfill his prophecies about Jesus. And to people today who do not know Jesus, it's a great mystery why we would trust in this guy who came to earth 2,000 years ago and died on a cross and and rose from the dead. And now we would say, yeah, I'm going to follow him with my life. And yet to those of us who have done that, who have faith in Jesus, you know what a difference it makes in your life, how Jesus has transformed your life and how he's still working in your life to help you become more like him. The mystery of the hope that we have that other people don't have. That no matter what comes our way, we have a God who is watching out for us. We have a home with him in heaven. It's a great mystery what Jesus Christ did for us and how God did it all. And deacons are to be committed to that mystery. And elders are to be able to teach that mystery. But my hope and prayer is that everyone in this room and watch online would believe that mystery, would trust in Jesus Christ and would follow him with their whole life because he will make such a difference for you. And he loves you very, very much. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Jesus, thank you for your word and how it teaches us what we should do in your household, in the church. And uh, this is sort of a behind the scenes passage for us to look at today, but it's important. It's important that we understand the type of people we put into positions in the church, whether elders or deacons or pastors or anything else. And it's also important that we remember the, the type of people you want us to be and the type of faith that we have and the great mystery of the faith that we hold to, Lord. My prayer as we go our separate ways today is that you would help us to pull one aspect of this, whatever that is, just speak it to our hearts, God. What is that one aspect of this that you would say, this is an area to surrender to you. This is an area to turn over to you and allow you to do your work so that we would become more like the person you want us to be. Whether or not one day we're all going to end up in some sort of a church leadership role or position, God, help us to live each day as well as we can with your help and your strength to, to live up to the standards and the expectations that you have for your people so that we can glorify you and so that we can lead others to glorify you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.